This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 513 for June 22nd, 2016. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. It's been a busy week after the Worldwide Developer Conference, and we're still catching up. Uh, I'm Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor at Macworld, and joining me is Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Hi, Glenn. How's it going? Good. I'm still uh, reeling from all the news last week, and I think we'll spend a big hunk of this podcast doing follow-up about things we talked about and things we learned since uh, last Tuesday and Wednesday. Yes, there's been a lot. It's we kinda... like, barely scratched the surface of like iOS 10 last time, I think. Yeah, and we're going to barely talk about the operating <laughs> systems, I think. That's the funny part. Like we're Most of the follow-up is about specific issues as opposed to uh, bigger Bigger stuff. So we'll we'll jump into it. So folks, just as the uh, sometimes we don't give you a um, a roadmap, but we're gonna do. We're gonna talk a lot about uh, follow up, and then we have a few uh, news stories we'll talk about at the end. Uh, things happening that we can catch up on. And I always bury this at the end. If you'd like to give us feedback about the podcast, you can email us podcast at macworld.com. So I'm putting that up front in case people want to give us feedback or suggestions or ideas because we'll be heading into the summer and there'll be less uh, news and breaking things even as. Uh, OS releases come out, and uh, we'll be looking for uh, interesting things to talk about each week. We do know that some people listen to the end because our buddy Kim listened to the end and came to the Macworld Party because I said, if you listen to the podcast, you want to come to the Macworld Party at WWC. And he came by and said hi, and we talked, and it was really fun. He's actually from Seattle. So. Awesome. Oh, that's funny. That's great. The uh, that's See, so there's sometimes there's a hidden a few gem. few people. Occasionally, if you listen to the end of the podcast. Four, I don't know how many... There might be a, all the way to the end. So. There might be a candy center at the end. Um, so here, let's start with. So first bit of follow-up, uh, the built-in apps that you can quote-unquote remove in iOS 10. Susie, they're not really being removed. They're not being yeah. removed. Yeah, after, um, you know, when you go back, it's one of those hindsight things. When you go back and you look at that um, Apple support page, it never says the word delete. It says hide. It says like remove from your home screen. It never even says remove from your device. So that's, yeah, that's good, good to know. Yeah, um, we- it did point out that altogether there are only 150 megabytes, but it didn't say that you'll get back by deleting that, you know, like it just kind of glossed over that part, but it was sort of like, you don't really need to delete. It was kind of like trying to talk you out of delete, but you're not deleting them. You're just hiding them. Um, yeah. Yeah, another tech writer pointed out to me that with uh, airport uh, mode enabled, airplane mode rather enabled, you could still reinstall the apps. And he said that would indicate they are still in the operating system. I'm like, huh. And then Craig Federici clarified. But not forgotten. Yeah, Craig Federici fl- clarified that what happens is they are removed from the screen, from the home screen. They're uh, removed from spotlight results, and all of the user provided data is removed. So if you Uninstalled okay. notes, for instance, uh, and you didn't have iCloud syncing enabled or whatever. When you uninstall notes, all your notes, that database will be removed. If you're using stocks, all your stock customization will be removed and so on. So I understand. And it was interesting. So um, uh, I was going to recommend later, but I'll just note now, uh, Craig Federici, and, uh, who's the developer head there, and Phil Schiller, head of worldwide marketing at Apple, were guests on John Gruber's The Talk Show event that was live at WWDC. And I recommend anybody interested in some of the intricacies of this, listen. I learned a lot. And there's also a video version during Fireball.net. 
I learned a lot because they gave the kind of nuance and detail that it's often hard to pry out of Apple without a lot of back and forth with PR. They don't usually talk this broadly uh, and, or this specifically, I should say, in this about that broad a swath of developer-focused and user-focused app interaction. So I thought it was great. And in that, Federici points out the problem is if they deleted the apps altogether – then you need to do a certain kind of thing and you then you're it's like an app what happens what should the default action be so in this way they can offer the app to you you can download it and they present an app store interface so that it's consistent um and i think there is still some flexibility with how they're updating it's still like a signed single binary that's a lump inside the system uh but it's interesting. It's interesting distinction, but it gets you the effect. The, problem, the issue isn't storage as much as, oh my God, I don't want the stocks app to show up on my home screen. I don't want to have a yeah. folder called, I have a folder called Ignored Apple Apps, as almost everyone <laughs> does. I renamed all my folder emoji, and that one is just a big no emoji. So <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really, it's not that I want the space. It's not that I'm, you know, so opposed to having it, you know, deep in my system somewhere. I just really don't want to see the icon anymore for some of these. And, I mean, knowing that it kind of purges it for you, like, I mean, apps don't always have a reset button. So, like, the mail app, you could just, you know, delete all your accounts, and that resets it. But being able to delete the app and then, you know, put it back again oh, that's a good point. new is you kind of the, a nice yeah. little, you know, reset button. That is an that excellent point. Before. And there was no real way to do that before because you, you could not delete user-stored user information. So if something went wrong, um, I had this problem with a different app. If you app, could go but, through and delete all your notes you know, you know, manually, you could go and take all your custom stock settings out. But this yeah. is just you know, a, little, a little faster. And you see this see. with apps. Like I had the New York Times app. And it was showing two top stories link in the uh, list of sections area for – Months and months and months, even when the software was updated, I finally had to uninstall the app. It reset the local database. Now it works right, but if that happened in any app you used regularly, you'd be stuck. Sometimes Safari gets weird too. I assume you can uninstall Safari, and I don't mind. I mean, there's other ways to delete the cache, sure but if it's Safari not, was on that list or not. I don't remember. Maybe. You can't. It's so built in. But I mean, in any case, you're not uninstalling it. You're just hiding it. Right. Uh, right. But very Apple thing. Like, we're, yeah, we're going to let you delete it. Well, no, we're not really going to let you delete it. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to let you think you deleted really it. Yeah. Uh, so another, your little heart. <laughs> another issue, uh, Swift Playgrounds, uh, which is a really interesting uh, – it's going to be an iOS um, – I'm so into this. This yeah, is like my favorite that will, thing. That's going to help teach programming to kids and anybody. I mean, it's it's being pitched as a way to teach kids. I'm like, nope, I'm going to be using that. And, yeah, and me too. Every adult I know is uh, interested in it. Um Side note here, it looks like I've installed the developer beta on a 32-bit iPad, on an iPad that was released in 2012. And uh, although I can't find this in the specs, it looks like you need a 64-bit device, uh, iOS device. And so that means a, an iPad Air or later, an iPad Mini 2 or later to run it. Now, I haven't been able to get confirmation because it's not a released product yet. Uh, developers can get it now and um, with the developer beta. And it looks like uh, I think that Apple will be releasing it as part of the public beta, but I'm not sure. They haven't made a, a statement, but it looks like it's just something that's available when you're running a beta of iOS on a device that can support it. Um, and next week, by the way, on this podcast, our plan is to have Fraser Spears, who is a uh, IT guy and uh, works uh, in education, um, support uh, t on to talk about his experiences with Swift Playgrounds. And that'll be fun. 
to cool. talk about that. So we'll be looking more to that. I think it's a great, uh, I mean, one of the interesting things about Swift Playgrounds is it's not just going to be a sandbox to learn programming, but there's a step that will let you export it to Xcode and then develop yeah. it into a real app. Yeah, you can send stuff right to Xcode. So, I, I mean, it has kind of lessons. If you have mm -hmm. no programming experience, you can start from, you know, the, the basics and go through and kind of learn as you go. But if you are already are a developer and you just, you know, you tend to kind of do one sort of thing, you can experiment with another kind of, you know, another part of Swift, another part of the SDKs. And because all this stuff in there, it's like real tools from from the iOS SDK. And yeah, then you can you can play around with it. You get to see immediately on one side, you know, one side of the screen is the code. The other side of the screen shows what, what it does. And you can, you know, change things and see the effects. And then when you're done, yeah, you can you can send that whole playground out to Xcode as a as a project. So that's kind of cool because we've I've, I've seen a lot of things that are aimed just at kids, and they're a lot of them are more about the concepts um, than than real code. So so I'm interested in playing around with this. I mean, I learned basic as a kid, and I loved it. So I, I liked how you could sort of look at it and read it a little bit, and like you could. It, it felt like a secret language. Like you, you could look at it and kind of see what it was going to do before you actually ran it. And Swift reminds me of that in that it uses, you know, real words and stuff. Yeah, Swift is, um, I read uh, the manual when Swift came out uh, last year and, um, or year now, yeah, year, last year, I'm sorry. And uh, uh, I've learned a bunch of programming languages in my life, but I'm not a, a, like a serious developer. So I learned C long ago. I've never learned C sharp or plus plus or objective C. And some of it I just find I'd have to devote you know, a few months to getting up to speed is what it feels mm -hmm. like. And I'm not a developer. I'm not out there releasing apps. So unless I'm going to change my career, which I'm not at the moment, because uh, app development, as we know, independent app development is not necessarily reliable and consistent form of income. Uh, so, But I like Swift. It has a lot that makes it clearer to me as a programming language. But then you start, you know, I get to the first part of the manual. I'm like, hey, I get all this. And then the next part, it's like, okay, here's how you, and you're like, oh, my God. So you, if you have something you that lost me. takes care of some of that so you can do real yeah, programming walks tasks. walks you through step by step. Yeah, and, then, and, and I love that it's on the iPad because it's making coding kind of a lean back sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Like this could be an unwinding activity, you know, like adult coloring or whatever. This could be like a little thing that you do like as a brain teaser, de-stressor kind of thing um, because you're not you're not chained to your laptop. Like you're not sitting there, you know, hunched over your keyboard. You're on your couch with your iPad just like dorking around in Swift. So I love this. I'm so excited. Also takes us a step closer to Xcode in iOS because right now developers have to run uh, Mac OS in order to compile it's apps. It's kind of Xcode light a little bit, I think. Yeah, yeah. so iPad Pro, uh, I don't know if it has enough processing power yet to really, I mean, you can really stress out a Mac with uh, Xcode. It's kind of amazing the resources it takes. So it's probably still a while away, but for certain kind of apps and certain kinds of development effort, it may be the thing you do. Or you do the development on an iPad, then you shift it to a Mac for chunking. I don't know. We'll find out. Uh, slide to unlock, Susie. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. One more. Let's do this first. No iMessage for Android. That was predicted, and it seemed to be a fairly strong prediction. Like, it seemed like people I mean, people that was had... one of those throw-everything-at-the-wall predictions, you right? Think so? like, I thought there was going to be iMessage for Android, because then later, when you thought about it, you were like, why would they make iMessage for Android? Like, it wouldn't be as good, and... It doesn't make any <sighs> sense, because they can't control enough of the infrastructure to make it work. And if you want a cross-platform... I mean, there's a lot of... We now have cross-platform... 
uh, you know, things like WhatsApp that are of a deeply embedded security system and work across everything. And now there are WhatsApps on Mac and uh, Windows as well. It's um, just like there's no revenue in it for Apple. Like they would get a cut of whatever, you know, like widgets and stuff were sold. But to make that stuff all work cross-platform would be kind of a tall order. So it's possible it wouldn't. Yeah, like those aren't their customers. M- Matthew Panzerino said on Twitter and I was just like, yeah, see. You I, w- I wish they would. So much better than I could. Like those aren't your customers and you should not waste time like trying to make stuff for those people who aren't your customers and will never be your customers. Counterpart, counterpoint rather is I wish they would because I think uh, closed silos are bad unless there's a, a reason for it. And I don't think right. iMessage has a great reason except a business case to be a closed silo. Like with FaceTime, uh, it's more, it's just a way to capture people as opposed to provide at this point an improved experience. So Well, yeah, and a great messaging app should be cross-platform, but that's why I sort of think that maybe Apple is like kind of barking up the wrong tree a little bit because unless they're going to do something like – and to Apple cross-platform is, you know, iOS and Mac, but there's a lot of people in the green bubble. And, um, yeah, I I just don't know if people would switch to iOS to get messages, but if you had it – on Android, people might say, okay, if I am not, if I don't have to like leave the blue bubble to get Android, I might go get Android. Like I know a couple people who are yeah. like, iMessage is keeping me on iOS. It's interoperability is an issue. All right. So I, I jumped the gun, but slide to unlock is gone. Susie, it's yeah. gone, gone, gone. Yeah. Slide to unlock is gone. Well, yeah. And iOS 10. So someone, someone was like, I'm kind of upset about this. And I'm like, okay, like, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's like, you know, that's that's been with us since the beginning. I re- was at the f- iPhone announcement. I remember when he showed, like, how do you how do you get in? Like, how do you unlock it? And did the slide to unlock? And everyone was like, oh. all the icons came up on the screen. It was, it was a moment. But that moment's gone because in iOS 10, they're doing a lot more with the lock screen. So um, when you go to, you, you can't, when you slide across the screen, you go to other screens. So on one side, to, to the left of the lock screen is your widgets, and to the right of your lock screen is the camera. You used to be able to get to the camera in iOS 9 and earlier by, um, there's a little camera icon in the bottom right, and you could uh, hit that with your thumb and slide it up. Um, but I, that wasn't super obvious to a lot of people. It's and awkward, too, to do. Yeah, it's a smaller target. Like, this is just mash anywhere on the screen and slide it over. There's your camera. So it's going to be more convenient. But yeah, that kind of precludes slide to unlock because you're sliding anywhere on the screen to do this. So instead, you just um, touch the button. If it's a touch ID, it'll open. Um, if it's not a touch ID, you just press it. So you'll be pressing your, your home button down maybe a little more um, if it's not a touch ID. So that could, you know, a, a couple people were like, oh, where and tear my home button, which, yeah, that's, you know, that's yeah. a concern. Well, but, if you don't have touch um, ID, you already have the uh, yeah. It's a weird thing, I, but it, it does raise to to thing. It does look raised to unlock now. So, and you might be seeing more on your home screen. You might not need to unlock your phone as much. I I think it's a much less awkward gesture. I was surprised because I hadn't read anything about it, and then suddenly I'm like, whoa! How do I unlock my iPad? And I look, and there's a little lock icon, and I click, and I'm like, oh, okay. So it's immediately intuitive. But and this is like I the always, developer beta one. So now it yeah. even says like touch. 
a, you know press button to unlock or something. Oh, yeah. But the, the, like this, the, the exact look and 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 execution of it could change a little bit before it ships. Yeah, it's just I think the lock screen was always a little bit slide to unlock was always a little bit awkward because when you get to bigger phones with a smaller phone, you have it in your hand. But when you have an iPad, then it's a two hand operation. If you have a larger phone, like even in my iPhone 6s, if I want to swipe to unlock, I'm still like I got to balance it in one hand and four fingers. I'm trying to do it now and move my thumb to get the right place. Like yeah, it's, it's, really, a, it's a it's a more natural one-handed thing because you're already picking it up. You're already probably pressing that button to wake it up. You know, I mean, you might not be because now you can just pick it up. But yeah, it's touch it ID seems- is the the future. I mean, Touch ID is going to be. Is it on every device now? The iPad Mini. I've been tracking. Is the current iPad uh, Mini? Oh yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think I think Touch ID is now the law, the law of the land. It's not the law, but it's um, it's so widespread and it's Apple's direction. So people aren't swiping to unlock anyway. You're just pressing, you know, you're tapping and holding or you know, hovering or whatever to to do and it. One so. of the rumors for the next iPhone is that it might get like a flat home button. So I mean, that could lead to like oh. a 3D touch kind of situation oh. where the home button could have different levels of pressure sensitivity if it's like you know touch. To, like double tap for this. The six S um, and the the six the big phones already have like a you can kind of double tap the home button without pressing it to get the screen to sort of scooch down for you. So there could be more things like that, and the home button doesn't even have to be a button. And then that would take away you know the potential for for mechanical failure. Um, so yeah, that that you know the the home button itself might might uh, evolve. There, there was a rumor for a while that it would go away and that would just be – and so I guess this would be sort of the home button going away. It would just be the ring, the the Touch ID kind of ring embedded into the the face of the iPad hmm. or iPhone. Well, I, that's, I don't know. I got I to gotta feel it to know it because I uh, – I'm always a little dubious about with like the haptic feedback, like the Force Touch trackpad. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. was okay. fooled for a while that it was clicking. Like I think Jason Snell convinced me. He's like, "No, it feels like it's clicking, but it's not clicking. They're just buzzing it a little bit." They could do that with the home button if they really wanted to. Interesting point. Yeah, right? I I want some kind of I want some kind of feedback. You don't want to just slide your thumb over and have it happen. Um, speaking of uh, hardware, though, the reaction to no hardware at WWDC seemed a little outsized. Like I thought they might put some in and then when they did the i want it now (laughs) i want new max daddy get some for me veruca whatever you want i'll get for you uh the it just seemed like it was um disproportionate to i mean so my statement is if there's no promised obligation then being disappointed when it doesn't arrive is a little churlish or childish veruca uh so the uh i mean apple it's interesting because Apple sometimes hints at things when they're not hinting and then something doesn't happen and it's all rumors. Should you, you know, should people be this disappointed? Uh, the Macalope pointed to Larry Maggot, who's usually, I think a very sensible writer, one of my favorite longtime technology writers. And, um, he wrote like the sense of palpable disappointment, like something really wrong had happened. I'm like, but it's WWDC. They don't always do hardware. And right now they have no reason to do hardware because we're, they're out of all their cycles. They're, they need to produce new Macs. There's a lot of outdated Mac stuff going on. Um, yeah. And I think that's really clear. Mac Pro specifically, but also it's just they're lagging on the Mac refresh cycle that needs to occur. That's for yeah, sure. I'm looking at the Mac Rumors Buyer's Guide, which oh, is yeah. my favorite place to look. And it says don't buy on everything. It says buy on MacBook. That was just refreshed. It says caution on iMac. But like MacBook Air, Retina MacBook Pro, MacBook Pro, we need refreshes on those pretty badly. 
So no, they sometimes do but, late but summer introductions. But if they're just going to put a new, you know, chipset in it and bump that up, they wouldn't. They wouldn't announce that on stage. They have four operating systems now. Well, they did so to much. Get through. It was John Gruber was joking about that with Greg Federici directly. It was you know it was like four, three or four keynotes at once. It was they, like two hours. Usually it's only an hour and a half. It was it was packed. It covered like, there was so no much. No place to put a Mac in there. That plus they did the subscription stuff a week early. Then they uh, had the pack keynote. Then there's stuff they didn't even mention that was coming out. You know, the platform, state of the platform. Um, oh, so, yeah, yeah. There was so much in there. Yeah, there was a, there was too much to put put it in there. And unless it was going to be like, we totally redesigned the MacBook Air and it's got Retina now and everything you've wanted. I mean, like there's the rumor about um, the MacBook Pros might get like a little OLED strip where the function keys are. So those keys could kind of change based on what you were doing. They sometimes ship this stuff, and and, and I I've, I know I'm remembering the past in July and August, Apple sometimes made announcements yeah. because it's uh, for back to school, either back to school and they have it ready to ship, or for Christmas and they're getting ready for the fall season. Uh, so it's I, I don't know I don't the amount of people who are poised to be disappointed. It's like I don't care. It's a hardware company, you know. They make hardware and software. Like why should you be so? It's like this is not the thing that's drive Max A are not driving Apple. B, we know the schedule for all their other devices. So it doesn't make sense. I think it's just a combination of wanting new stuff to play with because we saw a lot of sweet software, but, you know, it's not coming out for a little while. Um, so, you know, people want to have new things to try and review. And, the you know, the chipsets are old in these MacBooks, so it seems like, you know, they're a little late. And it's just, you know, Apple doesn't do... You know, they just want to at an event. It's flashier and more fun at an event than like, okay, we put new Macs in the store. It just feels, yeah, it feels like I say churlish and like like naive because it doesn't it means people didn't follow previous discussions. Oh, now, tech our, writers are churlish. Oh, our, yeah. Our own uh, Gordon Ung has oh, uh, posted a, uh, a piece um, on our sister site, PC World, that's linked to MacWorld about his idea for a new Mac Pro. And it's kind of fun. It's I don't think Apple will do something like this, but I totally see his point because, especially on the graphic card site. So if you want to read what a what someone from the PC side thinks about what yeah. a Mac Pro should be, I think it's a really great read. And he's a component nerd oh, and yeah. a you know powerful guy. He's have you ever watched? It? He has a video show on PC World called Hardcore no. Hardware. No, it's so funny. It's really good. I mean, I don't even care about the subject matter at all, and I watch it all the time because it's just very entertaining. I uh, I am not enough of a gadget nerd, so but now I'm going to have to yeah, watch this. Yeah, the Mac this. Pro is no longer hardcore enough for, for Gordon. Well, it's not. It's also years out of date. I mean, come on. Yeah. You make a trash can, then you leave it off to the side. Come on. Um, something that came up after, you know, we wound up writing a lot about uh, when Phil Schiller did this sort of pre-announcement, which would have taken, you know, half an hour in the keynote, we now realize, to talk about uh, all apps in the iOS app store being uh, 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 suitable for subscription services. I think the announcement was kind of a mess because the way they spoke about it, he spoke to, I think, four publications and the detail he gave, you know, John Gruber uh, wrote one piece about it. And then later in the day, he had to write an entirely other because there are all these unanswered questions. And I feel like they handled it very badly. This is one of these things where it would have been better to do a briefing, to talk to more people, to um, have provided information in advance. And because Apple is usually very good at messaging. And in this case, there's, I mean, I think we're now at the point where all the questions are answered, but I don't think it was handled well at all. Yeah, they wanted to get it out before. So, they, they, well, they said that they wanted to get it out before so developers could come like already having heard about it yeah. and they could like ask questions. 
And I guess they didn't want to do one of those secret sessions because then maybe the developers who should be there like wouldn't know they should be there. They, they it it just... did seem very clumsy and like not. It was very un-Apple. Like usually like they have such a a polished, like consistent message. And this was kind of like, oh, hey, by the way, like we had to cut this thing from the keynote like last night when it was running at two and a half hours. So we'll just tell four people and hope that, the you know, they deliver our message like we would on stage. And guess what? <laughs> not so great. But it was, I don't you know, I'm not blaming the writers. It was, it was no, really I'm not weird. They, and the, they probably gonna... didn't want to do like a whole big thing for everybody, like so close to the keynote because people are like, what? Like, no, we're coming to see you in a, in a day. They could have done the know. thing that other companies do. They're so bad. They could have had a conference call with 20 or 30 people and had questions be asked after a you know, 15, 20 minute introduction, did an hour for the whole thing, disseminated the information to everybody. I, you know, I feel it's dubious for a private company to uh, handpick press to disclose announcements that affect their business model, too. I don't think it's illegal or anything like that. I don't think it's, um, I feel like they wanted, I mean, Apple can choose to do what it wants to do, but I don't think it is. Uh, and this isn't just because I didn't get access. I would love to get a call and said, hey, here's what we're doing because I would have asked some of these questions because I'm a nerd in certain ways. And I don't think, like I say, the four – This is your wheelhouse for yeah, sure. <laughs> well, especially uh, you know, uh, Jim Dalrymple and John Gruber in particular. It's not like they're naive about this, but they got presented with a ton of new information suddenly, had a limited time to answer – to ask questions. And then you know, an hour later, they're like, wait, you know, it's like I just woke up and I don't – wait, what did he say? And you go back and John did that you – know, John did this great kind of not exactly soul-searching. So we didn't get – we got a, didn't get any real confirmation from Apple. I got a couple of details. But again, in that talk show podcast uh, a live session that John Gruber did, um, Phil Schiller clarified something that I had not heard him say anywhere else. Again, this is bad messaging. He said, in some states and countries, there's a legal obligation to provide continuing value when you offer a subscription. And so the reason they can't just say everyone can do a subscription, depend, you know, they couldn't just say, unless it's egregiously bad, we're not going to approve it. They actually need to evaluate whether they're putting developers in a position, position in which the developer might incur legal risk. And they said, we're working with legal to figure out guidelines, which Schiller said, you can hear his exact words, so that they can make sure developers are offering something of continuing value. And that's going to be tricky too, is what if you're a developer and you commit to a uh, you get yearly subscriptions and 10 months in, you just stop doing updates. What does Apple do? You know, are you then liable? I mean, are you, if you live in a country or state, yeah. which is an issue. Like if you're doing a monthly thing, like they sort of have to know yeah. what you're planning to deliver, how often, and then they kind of have to like hold you to it a little bit, especially well, if there's this complaints. legal thing. Like it's not like Kickstarter where they can be like, yeah, just give us your money and then whatever happens after that, we'll see. Yeah, it's easier for productivity apps if you're paying like, you know, I think that was Filler's main example, but there's going to be a lot of stuff that rises around it. And, and I think he made sure, you know, he also pointed out, you know, this isn't for a flashlight app where if you want the flashlight to work, you have to pay a monthly fee. They're not going to allow that. But I was the glad on I, button is free. The off button is going to oh cost God. you. I just feel like that That's should be You can run with that flashlight app developers. That's my idea for you. Uh, only on Android. Ooh, oh, what did I say? So uh, you wrote about the iPad as the Echo, as the uh, as opposed to Apple introducing unique hardware. Yeah. That, uh, we're, we're, this is how it's going to shape out that the iPad, because it can run uh, home hub. So there was an announcement. Yes, there was an announcement that also didn't make the keynote um, that iOS 10 is going to have this home hub mode only for iPads. And the iPad, Apple says you have to keep the iPad plugged in 
because what it's going to do is so if you have an Apple TV, uh, fourth generation, it also works with the third generation. That can be your HomeKit hub. So, got to back up a little bit more. HomeKit mm-hmm. devices talk to each other and talk to the phone that you're using with Bluetooth, primarily Bluetooth. Um, but Bluetooth, as we know, is you know a proximity-based thing. And when you're outside your house and your home network, um, you're not going to be able to talk to those devices. But actually, if you have an Apple TV, that can act as the bridge. It's always on. It's always on your Wi-Fi. It has Bluetooth. So, and you are signed into it with your iCloud. You're signed into your iPhone. So they have you know a secure connection that Apple has secured. And they put end-to-end encryption on it, and you can check in on and control your HomeKit devices from outside your network with the Apple TV kind of acting as that little, you know, bridge uh, hub kind of, uh, you know, if you will. So, but if you don't have an Apple TV and you don't want to buy one um, and you have an iPad lying around, you can, and it can run iOS 10, um, you can plug it in. And then that will also, you know, be your Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, always powered, always on bridge. Um, someone mm-hmm. was saying like, oh, you know, I, my iPad works with, hey, Siri, why do I have to leave it plugged in? I think it's so it can like wake up because um, when, you know, you, you can't say, hey, Siri to it when you're outside your home network, you'd have to, you know, yell really, really loud. So I think that's why you would have to keep it plugged in. But OK, so so that was the announcement. And then I looked at that and said, wait a second here, because we've been hearing about Apple maybe doing this Amazon Echo competitor. Um, the Echo, as we know, is one of these speaker, microphone, listening devices. It's on your network. You can add things to your shopping list. You can ask it to Google things for you. You can ask about the weather. It can play music. It's just kind of your little assistant that you talk to. Um, So Apple's kind of moving in that direction. And uh, one of the things that the Siri, uh, I'm sorry, the Amazon Echo and the also just announced hasn't shipped yet Google Home can do is they can control some of your... um, home devices. So if Apple has this iPad mode that can control your home devices, they're opening up Siri to third parties. That's another really big piece of this puzzle. They're kind of quietly adding to iOS 10 all these features that are like the big selling points of your Amazon Echo and your Google Home. So maybe Apple's saying we don't need a separate device. Um, Mm -hmm. The 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 standalone devices do have more powerful uh, microphones because they're like designed to, you know, be able to pick up your voice from all around the room. So like, you know, multi-directional, like powerful microphones. Apple's iPad doesn't have that. It has a microphone, but, you know, much wimpier than than these dedicated microphones. So I was like, oh, I think they could make a, like a standalone microphone. But then like obviously what I wasn't thinking right away that I've since thought is, you have all these microphones all over the place and every Apple device has a microphone in it. So they could they could try to like mesh all those together. And I mean, like that starts to get into, you know, like one of the things people like about Apple is that you know, there's that privacy focus. And then you talk about, oh, you'll just have all your Apple devices listening all the time. Like that can sound a little creepy. But if they figure out, you know, a way to do it, that's not creepy. Like, I don't know. I feel like all the pieces are kind of coming together. Oh, yeah. We can talk about the non-creepy part in a moment, too. Although um, the issue, you know, Siri collects a ton of information. Uh, and so far, I've no, I mean, people have concerns about it. But I don't think people don't use Siri because – I mean, no, I shouldn't say that. I think uh, a lot of people clearly use Siri. 
I'm sure there's a subset of people who don't use Siri because they don't want their spoken words, even in an anonymized fashion, however it's handled, sent to Apple and they don't use Google Now or other services. I think it's just well. awkward. People feel weird. Yeah. So there are, I mean, there are, so there's some people like that, but I don't, I don't hear that. I, I mean, I hear it as a, spe- a specific thing. I've heard a few people mention this. My wife is very protective of privacy. She is a Siri. And I've told her, I'm like, look, if you feel like you're, uncomfortable with it just reset it there's a place you reset it detaches the um unique user id from your phone so mm-hmm. then there's like right now there's a slow slight association um if someone could like attack apple's databases and track i mean there's a lot of pieces to make it work the minute you reset your uh user uh, unique id for siri where uh, you can do that in um, in the siri settings in ios it it just there's no association at that point uh, on from that point. Dan Morin wrote a, a great column about um, pointing out that the new Mac OS is not an iOS clone, that there's a lot of concerns of the convergence between uh, Mac OS and iOS, that Mac OS was sort of going to lose out and Mac OS would become iOSified. And instead, I definitely agree with him that this shows Apple continuing to move in a direction where there are more uh, iOS feature compatibility, like like much broader use of Siri instead of making a Mac OS more iOS like, do you think that's, do you agree? Disagree? Yeah. I like how he pointed out that Siri, I mean, it feels like on the one hand, it kind of feels like a port, you know, it started on iOS and then they brought it to Mac OS. But on the other hand, it has kind of things that could only, that you can only do on Mac OS, like being able to save search results as widgets is pretty neat and then there's a little holding pen in your notification center where you can drag things in from Siri results and possibly Spotlight results too, and then drag them out again later. Um, that's stuff that would only really work on a Mac, which which he pointed out. So I thought that was a really good point that they weren't just like, oh, we have this on iOS, like let's put it on the Mac. They were thoughtful about like how it would how it would be most useful, and they get that people use their different devices different ways, and that's why they sell such a wide array of devices. So I like how they're doing it. I like this approach better than you know like Windows or like let's put Android apps on Chrome or some kind of thing where they're trying to make you use the same thing on multiple devices. Like they're like, we'll, we'll put some of the same features and, you know, looks and feels so you know what you're doing and it feels familiar, but they're, they're, they're different experiences. Yeah. And they're making good use of things like continuity uh, so that you can have Apple pay work and it's not, you know, you're still using iOS device to make it work, which is cool, but you're going to do it in an entirely intuitive way in macOS or the shared clipboard thing. I mean, that's being able to do that across your devices. It brings them closer together instead of forcing you to use some kind of, I mean, you don't have to use iOS like tools inside macOS that feel awkward. You're using the best aspects of macOS. Uh, I'm a and, little nervous about shared clipboard. I haven't tried it yet, but. Um, oh yeah. I mean, right. I, so I, like, like I mean, Apple, I have two clipboards. Like how does it know which one? Is it just whichever one I put on last? Is it just, is it really just one clipboard now instead of I two? Think it's one, I think it's one clipboard. Is, no, I mean, but, look, if you, I had this happen with uh, Apple supported shared clipboard in screen sharing, uh, which is funny, you know, screen sharing is people, I don't know how many people have multiple Macs now. It used to be a big deal to be able to, and I still have, I have two Macs in my house. One is my desktop, you know, fixed Mac and I have a laptop. 
So I will screen share from my laptop into my desktop. I know it's just a floor away, but sometimes I, you know, I need to do that. Uh, I'm not lazy, I swear. I need the resource from one thing on the I other. I said a lot less now that like all my Macs are laptops. Like the the chance of oh, yeah. like, two of them being open is like, well, also, <laughs> if the like, laptop's not in use, it's probably closed and then I can't really get to it as easily. Between iCloud and Dropbox and Google Sync, like I don't have anything that I need that's only on one machine. It's always the stuff that I need is in multiple places, yeah. uh, except for my email archive. I don't use IMAP. That so too. It's, all like, it's a lot more cloud Mac. stuff. You don't need to get like, oh, I got to get back to my old hard drive and get something like it doesn't exactly um now moving on to uh oh actually here's another good uh, os 10 bit that wasn't really covered but it's going to be great is um they are safari 10 for mac os will uh no longer it uh so this okay so this is slightly technical but it'll be interesting it's the the high level part is that Safari 10 is not is going to um, force websites to deliver content in HTML5 video content if it's available, and that that's sort of the story. The, They're going to be like Flash, no Flash here. Yeah, the low level detail is that um, this when the is website kind of a problem. For flash, it'll pretend back, that you don't have Flash even if you do. Yeah, it dates back a long time. Is like to the origin of uh, web browsing. Almost is web browsers have this transaction they do with the web server, and they say, "Hey, I want this page." And by the way, here are like all of my capabilities. Here are the image formats I accept. When there were different image formats that were accepted by different browsers or standards, here's the multimedia formats here's like spews out all this information which today you'd never design a system that revealed that much specific information about a browser configuration even the referral url will often say the exact version of software and other details and it's been shown that when you take uh what should be anonymized information if it has browser uh information browser headers with it you can actually often specifically identify people so some of the ad networks uh not the reliable ones but the you know the shady ones we'll say the shady ones will do this they can figure out uh even if someone has every cookie off and all privacy mode and everything else in place they can often identify a person with some degree of reliability by the information the browser sends about its capabilities coupled with like ip address and version number and so forth so Apple is no longer going to send multimedia information. It's not going to say I can do QuickTime, I can do uh, I can do Flash, I can do whatever. And for sites that are already up to HTML5, it's going to make the site not fall back to an older standard, but the site will try to deliver HTML5 packaged video. Then if the site can't deliver it, Apple will have kind of a – it looks like a click-to-use sort of option. Um, so you'll still be able to play it, but it's going yeah. to – They'll give you the choice. They'll say, I have to play this in Flash. Do you still want to play it? Yeah, and what's, which they do sort of today, too. I have that thing where it says, you know, activate Flash. And I'm like, oh, maybe not uh, for this page. So I think uh, it's a I think it's a significant improvement. Um, and it's it going to help battery life because HTML5 is way better for that, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think HTML5, uh, I don't know. It supports multiple encoders, but I think Flash can still... It can be very inefficient. It's not as horrible as it used Maybe to be. I'm just thinking anecdotally. That's like it makes my fan go on. <laughs> well, it may still. I mean, it's it's a, a lot, lot of more things overhead. make my fan go on. F- Flash is a lot more overhead than just using H. If you use H.264 video inside of HTML5, it's very very lightweight and it's using built-in you know chip decoder support. So it's like the it's the thinnest possible transaction to get video to come up. So it'll also force sites that have been lagging who are not delivering HTML5 or they have not built their systems well to degrade to the right uh, or degrade or upgrade to the right video thing. It'll be a big change because suddenly you'll have, you know, 
10, I don't know, tens of millions of people on Mac OS who will no longer be telling you they can support Flash if they still have it installed. Well, at this point, I don't know how many people have Flash still installed with Safari. Uh, one more thing on this, uh, one more <laughs> little follow-up, and then we'll talk about a, a few other things before we conclude this episode. Uh, Jason Snell wrote a wonderful column also about why iMessages got so much attention, and it's uh, and it's a great thing. Totally agree with him. He pointed out Notes got a lot of love last year, right? And suddenly Notes does sync and it's richer and whatever because Apple found that so many people use Notes. And they're like, this is where we should be putting our attention. iMessages is the most used app in iOS. I think they said it was, I think in iOS, I don't think on OS, on Mac OS. Um, and so this is a great place to focus effort and expansion because it's where uh, the money is. Uh, so Apple, so Jason wrote a column about why iMessage got the upgrade. And then Oscar Raimundo wrote a, uh, not a counterpoint exactly, but he does not like the emojification of iMessage in iOS 10. He doesn't find that that significant relative to other things they could do. So we've got two interesting not entirely views, not entirely in opposition, but a uh, good no, complimentary. They're not complimentary saying like views. opposite things. Yeah. No, nice complimentary views. So recommend yeah, I mean, Jason's Jason made a great point in that, you know, get, this is an app people use a lot. So they're going to put their attention, you know, where it's going to get the most eyeballs and they're going to really spruce up this app. And, you know, that, that will probably drive its, its usage even more because um, I, I just think it will. Unless, I mean, there could be, you know, a, a, a backlash. I, I think the growth would be bigger than the backlash, but there could be a backlash of people being like, look, I liked it because it was nice and light, you know, like it, it didn't have all this crap in it. If I wanted stickers and junk, I'd use like WhatsApp or I'd use Facebook Messenger, which has a lot of extra stuff in it or Snapchat, like, good Lord. So, um, yeah, you know, but but I also think that, you know, you can, it's it's the SMS app in iOS and it's going to get a ton of use either way. So, uh, yeah. And but then Oscar just thinks that it's it, the the changes that they made were just, you know, kind of window dressing and not really, really enough to to make it like a great chat app. It doesn't it doesn't do the things a great chat app needs to do. And one of the things he calls out is that it's not cross platform. Mm -hmm. um, so. So yeah, I I've been playing with it a little bit. I kind of like it, but you know, it's it's going to be more fun when everybody else has it. It's kind of lonely right now. Yep, it's going to be. Uh, I got I got to get. Uh, I'm not risky enough to put my iPhone on iOS 10 yet. I might go for the public beta, but I don't have a day phone and iPhone like some people, Susie. Yeah, well, I, I see. The thing is, I wanted to Test use WatchOS three, oh, so I was gonna yeah. put it on like a side phone. But then I really wanted to use WatchOS three, and I didn't want to change what yep. device my watch was syncing to. So I just went for it. So like, yeah, I'm on developer beta one, and you know what? It's been fine. Like, I'd, it's this is pretty good. I don't. Want, I mean, I don't want to tell everyone to rush out and don't put run, developer don't. beta one on their carry phones because that's kind of dangerous. Okay. I have a I have a backup phone, but I just went. I went to. I just thought I'd go for it because I really wanted the watch OS three, which has also been fun. Uh, so that's kind of the end of the main follow up. We have a tiny bit more follow up that's separate, which is uh, differential privacy. Um, this is an interesting thing. Apple highlighted it in the keynote, explained it a little bit, and then there's a breakout session that um, this is still confusing to me. WWDC video, they used to keep everything under wraps and they didn't post the video right away. Now they're posting video almost immediately and of some percentage of it, I don't know how much is, um, I don't think it's all, but it's some large percent. You just go to developer.apple.com and you can watch them without any login or permission. You don't have to click through an NDA or 
anything else. So there's a really interesting one on uh, privacy, and it mentions differential privacy. It's for developers to engineer privacy into their apps, and it talks about differential privacy in it. I've read the academic papers. I talked to Matthew Green, a leading security researcher, uh, read some Google papers about it. And um, the whole thing is really fascinating. The, the basic idea, as Apple said it, it's a way to provide plausible deniability is, a, is how I would put it. So it's not that uh, it, it prevents um, details about you from being tracked back to you, even if every single thing were leaked and it, people even knew it came from your computer. So in the worst possible case, if every answer that you made to a question, let's say, uh, were uncovered and tracked to you, the people who recovered it would be unable to determine which of your answers were accurate or truthful. Um, so here's a good one. Uh, Susie, are you a communist? Now flip a coin, and if the coin comes up heads, you say yes. If it comes up tails, you give me a truthful answer. There's no way for someone having one answer in isolation to know whether you're a communist or not. Uh, or, or whether the coin flip came up heads. If you have enough of that information, you can statistically back it out. So that's that's the basis of, you know, if that technology technology approach goes back 60 years, uh, the differential privacy has its roots about 10 years ago. And what Apple's implementing is a way for it to gather limited kinds of information without exposing where it's coming from. And it's going to subsample. So only a fraction of, of people running iOS and macOS a fraction of that data will be sent. So it'll be, it'll be have noise introduced to be unable to determine whether someone's answer is accurate when it's stored on the device, it's going to be stored in the noisy form. So Apple told uh, Matthew green and ostensibly some other security people in a background briefing that even the information stored temporarily before it's uploaded to Apple isn't stored in the form in which um, it's stored in the original form. So if uh, one of the examples is Apple is going to be, trying to see which deep links inside apps are most uh, popular so it can surfer, surface better, like more popular search results to people in Spotlight, right? So you go, you know, you go to Netflix and uh, everyone's going to some, you know, orange to new black. So that deep link inside the app uh, will be pushed, uh, but no, but it'll be impossible for um, anyone to know whether you are, which URLs you're looking at uh, because the information from your device will already be stored in obscured form uh, so it can't be backed out even before it gets to Apple. There's a tweet I love that really helped um, open up new levels of understanding yes. for me about this. Your your piece was great, but this tweet um, by Martin Gruten um, says, if you ask lots of drunk people a question, many answers will be wrong, but the average answer will be correct. That's differential privacy. That is completely accurate. That is exactly I it. I love it. And you, exactly anytime it. you make analogies with drunk people, I am I'm with you. Well, and the the Apple uh, uh, product manager who is explaining differential privacy to developers noted, he said, "Look, if you're trying to figure out, let's say you want to figure out if people pick, you know, one, ten, twenty, or fifty to more in some option, and you want to know how many people are picking fifty or more. Well, a, you don't have to get the exact number. You don't need fourteen or eighteen. You really are fifty or more or not. So that's one bit of privacy. The second is you don't need to collect it from everybody because collecting it from a tiny percentage of people. He said, if you collect that information from, I think he said, uh, 1% of people, your answer is accurate within plus or minus 
one or plus or minus point one percent. One percent of iOS users is a lot yeah. of users. But then he said even further, if you collect it from point one percent of people, the inaccuracy only creeps up slightly, but you don't need that much accuracy to begin with. So suddenly you're plus or minus one percent, and that's cool because you're just trying to find out this general piece of information. Then you layer differential privacy on top of it. So you collect it from a tiny number of people, you add noise, you back it out statistically, and it's still totally useful without uh, gathering very much information or having the potential to invade anyone's privacy, either by They're Apple or They're not making a profile of you in parties. the cloud somewhere is the bottom yeah. line. And, and that's what they really want you to like understand. The other part that Matthew Green explained to me was that um, there's a thing called a privacy budget, which is they can't, there's like, well, two related concepts. One is they can't ask you too many questions that are similar because the noise gets resolved there. If I ask you a lot of different questions about communism, I might be able to figure out you're a communist even with the statistical variation of you flipping a coin for the answers. If I answer, are you a communist every day for a year, I'm going to be able to figure it out eventually if I have all your answers as well, because I'll be able to have enough data. So that's the concepts I have to deal with there. So you can read my column and there'll be more coming about that. Uh, iPhone 7, we'll just zip through a few things here too before we're done. Uh, iPhone 7, you don't know Jack. There's uh, potentially going to be an audio Jack. It's the latest rumor. Yeah, some component spy photos are out that show the lightning assembly and it still has the headphone jack on it. So maybe you will have a headphone jack. I mean, like if the redesign is not coming until next year and this year, like the big redesign is that they're taking away the headphone jack. Like that just seems like they're opening themselves up to a lot of like it, it. like all heck would break loose. I think everyone like a, would freak out. Yeah, it's not a tickier either. Like this, the seven yeah. is a. If you did that in concert with like you know the whole, it's an OLED phone and like other things that are just like no brainer selling points. But if it's like it's the same phone without a headphone jack, like who's gonna buy it? What, Nobody's what, gonna buy it. What would it harm Apple if they said at the introduction of the iPhone seven? Hey, we know there are a lot of rumors out there about removing the headphone jack. We know how passionate people are about having a, or what I'm sort of exaggerating, an eighth inch jack in their phone. We have a roadmap and we're working with uh, hardware makers, third party makers to make sure that in a year when we do remove the headphone jack, everything will be certified and lightning compatible and there'll be a bunch of options. What would it harm them to say that is my question. There's a lot of things that are proprietary. They might sell a lot of phones. Like they might sell more phones this year. Like exactly. people, you know, Remember when like everyone was like trying to guess which the last Mac with like an optical drive would be? Oh, so the yeah, people who yeah. were like, no, I need an optical drive. Like they're know. like, I, I they want to get that last one. So it's like the last one they're ever going to update with the with the fastest chips it's ever going to have in a, in a Mac with an optical drive. Maybe it'd be like, like that, where people would be like, I want the last iPhone with a headphone jack, and then I'm going to use it until the wheels fall off. I think if they message it ahead of time, it might not be so bad, but I don't know. I think they people- don't do that. I know, but they could. There's no- They could. My, my question is, there's no- And there are different Apple They can make a message for Intro, too. Right, we're going to run through a few stories before we're done here. Keep it short. So uh, Apple Pay for ATMs, Bank of America- Has now supported that. So that means someone can hold you up, take you to an ATM and make you- No, I'm just kidding. You still have to enter your passcode, but you don't need your card with you. You can get cash if you forgot your wallet. And I forget my wallet like once a month, so I'm pro. What I'm waiting for is I want- to no longer need a credit card. I want my physical card to be disabled. I want them to send me a credit card. I put it into Apple Pay. And then I decide that the only way, I want to be able to have an option that says you can't use this card in an ATM or in a credit card network anymore unless it's from Apple Pay. And that would be great. No, not well, you don't have to cut it up. You keep it as a backup. So in case you lose your phone or you have to reset Apple Pay, you can always- Use it in a block of ice in your freezer. Exactly. You put it in your, uh, you know, 
uh, dresser drawer. But uh, I would like to be able to prevent anyone else from using my card in the physical world. And yeah. that will happen. Uh, airport router firmware, if you missed it, there's a 7.6.7, 767, like an airplane. Uh, update out for older 802.11 N routers, 7.7.7. Uh, for 802.11 AC routers. The thing about this, it's weird. I was communicating with Lucian Constantine, who's IDG's, uh, one of IDG's security writers. Uh, Apple released the 802.11 AC update in May, and they only released the 761 on June 20th and then released the security update information at the same time for both. And it's a serious DNS problem, uh, which sounds like there might have been a way for people to hijack uh, a router's information, even so you're on a computer on a network that uses airport routers. If you visited a malicious site, it's possible the malicious site could send invalid DNS information that would allow it to essentially reroute traffic from the router on the internet, which is scary and reroute in the sense of providing illegitimate information about what domain names were actually matched to. Um, so install that update. <laughs> Sounds pretty serious. You know, that's another thing I like about my airport routers is that when there is an update like this and I'm not like a security person, like it's like, hey, hey, dummy, there's an update for your, it's like a big red number one. It's flashing. Like I, I have to install airport it. launches airport utility. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so that's nice. If I was using like a browser based thing, like would it be able to tell me? It's, they might, uh, no, not unless you had notifications and then you would visit the site and yeah, it's a, it's a good advantage. Okay. Two more stories quickly. Then we'll be finished guys, listeners, uh, Apple book <laughs> settlement. Like, stop typing. <laughs> no, it's Apple, Apple book settlement. There'll be, uh, uh, you'll find credit for books that you bought that fit into certain categories from the, um, Amazon episode monopoly, but we're suing Apple and retail booksellers thing. I got a few bucks and got 15 bucks, my Amazon account that came from Apple settlements. So you're going to see Speaking it. Speaking of settlements, how much Ticketmaster tickets did you get? I got two. I didn't really buy like a billion. I got like 35 pairs of tickets or something absurd. Like I have yeah. so many, but like, there's no concerts yeah. for them yet. I'm still waiting for that. Redeem them for like the, the, uh, um, reunion for the little river band or something know, though it's, it's not gonna, gonna be, be really funny i'm gonna go to all terrible. of them i'm gonna be there in the front row being like yeah <laughs> you and every i got my settlement uh yeah so check your if you haven't checked your Ticketmaster account even if you haven't used them in a year the settlement goes back to um 1998 the same Ticketmaster account since college yeah so, so like I, that's i don't even remember having bought any and apparently i did uh and finally apple uh is going to potentially be able to open its own retail stores in india there were some uh, laws, even though it had some liberalization a number of years ago for the economy, uh, it still had laws that required a certain percentage. I think it was 30%. 30%, yeah. Yeah, local like, uh, material had to be sourced locally. You're going to have a chain store that's like owned outside of the country. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Tr- and right, and, well, there's foreign ownership was one thing. Now companies in India can be 100% foreign owned. There's a limitation in like one category. And the local sourcing thing, there's going to be a waiver for three years, potentially five, uh, for companies that primarily like make their own stuff, right? Like Apple or they're even talking about like luxury good makers. You know, how does um, – Name a luxury good maker. Do I know what they are? You don't know. I don't know. We don't buy. I don't buy luxury goods. Uh, not like Hermes or Hermes, something. Hermes. Let's say Hermes. I think Hermes would. Hermes would have had the same issue. So single source stores that sell their own stuff. Uh, and so uh, this is potentially an enormous liberalization of the economy. It could have a huge impact in India and bring in a lot of outside capital and uh, more commerce, more international commerce, which is great because India is programming the world. India is. Uh, giant pharmaceutical uh, uh, manufacturer. Um, 
They are exporting programmers to like they are an incredible. Apple just opened a big like maps development oh, center yeah. in India. So maybe maybe they can work out some sort of deal where it's like okay, well if 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 like the software, if some of the software is, is no, they, from India, they can get a like waiver. They, that's the whole thing. Is yeah. There's a waiver that'll let them bypass the rule for at least three years, maybe five. And in that time, mm-hmm. I assume they'll work out know, more compromises. They're showing, they're trying to show that they're you know making an investment in the country. Oh, yeah, like there's they're tons not just of outside yeah, yeah. Uh, companies, that, and they, they can only make certain investments and have to use them through third parties. So this opens the ability. Apple could now build a you know ten billion dollar data center in India if they wanted to and own it a hundred percent without having to um, work with local partners if they. Don't don't choose, which is true in many, but not all countries uh, in the developed world. So this is good news. Good news for India. Good news for Apple. Good news for freedom, probably. <laughs> so we have zipped through a lot of news. We'll be back next week with even more. Susie, great to talk with you again. Yeah, great to talk with you as always. Thank you. And I'll I miss have, you next week when I'm on vacation. I was right. Next week we'll have special guests. Uh, and uh this has been, I've been Glenn Fleischman, as I remain, and this has been the Macworld Podcast, episode 513 for June 22nd, 2016. Email us, podcast at macworld.com, and find us at macworld.com. Thanks for listening.